Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host, Ben Myers of Bullpen Research and Consulting. I am obviously a researcher, a consultant, a data analyst. Uh, I do not know where Steve Cameron is, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll start out with, uh, with no Steve because I wanted to break the news to him about our new sponsor. The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is brought to you by BCGI Barron Consulting Group. And they are an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent and has the trust of real estate professionals seeking career advice. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. Well, we have... Another great guest today, and our guest has spent over 15 years in sales and marketing of new housing in the GTA with several of the GTA's most recognizable developers, including Minto, Addy Developments, Great Golf, and now Madame Homes. She's been involved with the underwriting and launch of more than 50 projects, resulting in the sales of over 12,000 homes and condominiums in Ontario. Her experience covers all types of new developments from small infield projects and master plan communities to mid and high rise buildings. Welcome to the show, the Vice President of Sales and Marketing and the Design Studio at GTA Urban at Madame Homes, Alison O'Neill. That was quite, that was quite was. a mouthful to get yeah, that title out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Did I, did I nail it? Was you that, did. Did yeah. I, okay, yeah. good, good. There's always things, people, I take bios off of websites and people are like, that's so old, I don't do that anymore. So I was and, thinking about the 12,000, if that number is still accurate or if I need to update that. So well, I'll have if to you're check. anatomy homes, I imagine. Uh, Probably um, added a couple thousand a, a to few that thousand already. Uh, <laughs> just in the, last, in the last month, so. Yeah. So I don't know if you listen to the show, but we usually like to go over um, a little bit of your career and 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 uh, and how you got started and how you get into real estate. So let's you know give us a little bit of flavor. You, you're you're a Laurier graduate. What was the plan? Didn't really have a plan to be honest. So I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really come into this industry in a traditional way. I was kind of doing odd jobs once I finished school. I had a dream of moving to New York and doing my master's, but then 9/11 happened. Oh wow. <laughs> They kind of got a little tough with the visas, so put that on hold. Um, I actually got into the industry. I started um, after school. I had $10,000 left in Canada savings bonds that my grandma had got me to get through (laughs) school. Um, And it was burning a hole in my pocket, so I was trying to decide, do I buy a condo or do I buy a new car? Um, Luckily, I chose condo. Probably the smartest decision (laughs) I ever made. Um, Bought a condo in Liberty Village for $10,000 down. Wow. Um, for 244000 for a 796 square foot, one bed and debt. Nice. So did pretty well on that. <laughs> um, and after that, I kind of became obsessed. I was one of those people that the sales agents hate. I was always in the sales office. I'd go around to competitors, model suites on the weekend. Just kind of became obsessed with the whole process. Um, 
as I said, I was doing some odd jobs and an opportunity came up at Minto for a contract position as a marketing coordinator. It was a three-month contract and I ended up staying for three years. Okay, cool. And I think this is one of those industries where you either love it or you hate it and go running for the hills. And yeah. I just fell in love with it immediately. Nice. Yeah. And nice. then from there, you know, I spent most of my career at Great Golf. I was there for about nine years. I, I started off there as a sales and marketing manager, sort of switched and went into more of the sales role as director of sales, and then eventually brought sales and marketing back together as the VP of sales and marketing. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you have any... Uh any favorite projects that you worked on then? I mean, they're all my favorites. I say the projects are like kids. <laughs> yeah. And I always ask people what their, who their favorite child is. But, you know, we worked on One Bloor, uh, Moaned, Young and Rich, Eight Cumberland, 357 King. Um, so we were really busy. We did a project down in Florida as well called La Clara in West Palm Beach. That was nice. probably one of my favorites just because we would book meetings on Thursdays and Fridays down there and Ooh. turn it into a long weekend. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So you got, how often did you get to go to Florida then? I was probably going once a month quite regularly for wow. about a year. Yeah. Okay, cool. And how did the sales go there? They went well. Yeah. Yeah. So it ended up launching after I left, unfortunately, but they're, I think, about 90% sold and the building is about to register. So. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since you've, it's only 90 yeah. cents old. <laughs> it's a different market in the yeah, States. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I wanted to talk about a project that, um, that, uh, that you were involved in when you were at Great Golf, because we're in this kind of period of transition in our, in our high rise condo market and, you know, worries about launches and delayed launches and how well the launches will do when they, uh, when they, when they, um, when they come out. So, I think it was 2012, 357 King came out the very first time. And that was kind of the, the, the point where the market turned. The project didn't sell well. All the investors like put their eyes onto that project and said, why isn't it selling well? And then, you know, as you know, we went on a 18 month, 24 month period of really soft high rise market. So what, what do you remember about that time? And, and what do you think you guys, uh, if you do remember what you guys maybe missed about that project at the time? Yeah, I think a lot of it did just come down to timing yeah. and where the market was at. Um, I think there was a little bit of, of misstep around the branding. We, the name of the project was actually called Tuxedo or Tux yes, at yes, the time. <laughs> yes, I remember it. Now I remember, yeah. There was some Really, in it, like larger, inefficient units, you couldn't have any glazing on the east or on the west facade, um, and parking was a challenge there. So we were doing one of those mechanical parking systems, which really drove up the maintenance fees. Yeah. So I think all of that together, unfortunately, we I think we wrote about twelve deals, and then <laughs> it just stopped. Yeah. Yeah, back when yeah, weren't you guys pushing like over six hundred dollars a foot or something there? Yeah, I know it's crazy. It's so expensive. <laughs> That was, uh, that was, uh, you know, it's crazy to think back, right? Like for some reason, $600 a foot just always sticks in my mind as a number. And I don't know why it is 700, 800, nine, even a thousand, 600 is the one I just always remember, go back to 2012, 2013. And, uh, and at that point in time where it just felt like prices were going up so quickly, but, you know, having lived through 2022, it's just a whole, and 2021, just a whole different world in terms of, you know, price growth on an absolute basis, right? Yep. So, But um, I guess another memorable 
interaction between me and you is I was just walking down the street and I ran into you and you were about to show, um, who were you showing the, the penthouses to? Uh, I had totally forgotten about this and I can't Linda Mitchell, remember. Linda Mitchell. Oh, yes, Linda yes, Mitchell, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And I was like, well, can I come? So you took me up to the top, one bloor. Uh, and it's funny, I'm being, I'm tall, but I'm actually kind of scared. <laughs> so when we went out, I was like, I didn't want to get close to the, to the, uh, to the, the railing, but it was really windy out there. Yeah. And I think when we went down it, and I don't know if, if it was just because the building was new, but literally took five minutes for <laughs> the elevator to come and get us. Do you think that the penthouses on 70s, 60th uh, floors are, actually that desirable or do you think it's just a status play you know you're on the 75th floor the second tallest building in all of canada like how, how do you view, view those types of suites i mean it it definitely is a bit of a status play but i think we missed the mark a little bit at one bloor yeah i think with the price of those penthouses going like the biggest one i think is up still for sale for 10 million dollars approximately so if you're spending that kind of money you don't want to be in a building with 800 of your closest friends if yeah. you're buying for status. Yeah. If the building had been, you know, top of Four Seasons Hotel or, you know, a little bit more bespoke of an experience with separate amenities, separate elevators, yeah. then you might attract that status buyer. But I just think it was a little bit off the mark. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, it's... But the views are incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, obviously an incredible view. And, and uh, obviously we're watching... The other one bluer go up right now, and uh, and uh, <laughs> hoping that it uh, makes its way all the way to the top. And yep. uh, it's and it, it's obviously targeted a full a full luxury buyer for the entire building, right? So yep. interesting how they've gone a little different route than uh, than what you guys did, but obviously completely completely different market. So so let's move on. You you left Great Golf. You ended up on a much smaller developer. We know, uh, Steve and I both know uh, Tarek Adi very well. And so what was it like going from a very, very large developer with, with a lot of different asset classes to a small kind of boutique developer? Yeah. It, you know, I always say it's like going from a Fortune 500 to a startup. That was kind of the vibe. I think what really attracted me to that role was really being able to build a team, build processes and grow the company. Um, so it was, it was definitely challenging when my team consisted of one or two people, um, <laughs> when I was used to eight or nine or 10, yeah. um, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge to shift my mind back a little bit more to the day-to-day -day business while trying to sort of build those processes yeah. and teams. Yeah. And, uh, and what did you think of the, uh, you know, I mean, you know, obviously almost all the projects were in the Burlington market. So it must be a little bit different just to concentrate on one singular market and, and one type of buyer. But overall, was it, it was a good experience? Yeah, I mean, I think I hadn't done a project in Burlington and, and that market definitely comes with some challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was just chomping at the bit. We had a couple of sites, one on Portland, one yeah. at Prince Arthur. Um, and I was just kind of chomping at the bit to get the first Toronto <laughs> project yeah. going. Um, unfortunately it's still not going, but like <laughs> yeah. that really was a, the exciting part is, is the growth they were looking at and just pushing the envelope. Yeah. Yeah. It's so disappointing that obviously on the 64 Prince Arthur one where they really pushed the architecture. I mean, the first design was absolutely stunning, but you know, the neighborhood doesn't want something that tall. Right. And, uh, and it's unfortunate uh, that, you know, it'll probably never come to fruition as a, as a high rise tower when 
you know, it's minutes away from two subway lines and, you know, it's, uh, I mean, those are the types of sites we should definitely be a little bit more open to. Exactly. Especially when you're pushing the envelope architecturally and you were going to get a luxury buyer into that. Yeah. those those projects right you weren't pushing a 900 units of 375 square feet right so but what can you do what can you do that's yeah. as we know the planning in in our city is uh painful. is very <laughs> painful right i just it just for me i mean i mentioned it on the podcast a million times it just it blows my mind they can build 80 stories at young and bloor then you get to Summerhill and they'll fight 10 stories to the death yeah. and then you go to young and eglinton and it's you're back, back to up. 75 stories again, right? So Yeah, I always ask our <laughs> development team. I'm like, I don't know how you guys do this. Like if I had to deal with the cities and all of this, like it would it's painful. Yeah. 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 Especially we, we, we had one of the guests from Candrell and they were trying to get a building permit and he called to check on it and he's like, Oh yeah, but uh, we could approve that, but you've only been in the queue for like a couple of days. And generally, you know, we want people to wait this amount of days because there's so much in the queue. And it's like, yeah. With the amount of time you spent explaining this to me, you could have stamped the building permit. So, <laughs> anyways, we uh, we have an interesting city and an, <laughs> and we have some gatekeepers, right? So, yeah. so I guess you know before we move on to to your 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 time now with with Madame, and I'll get you to give a you know a high level view of of Madame for anyone that happens to not know who Madame Holmes is. So. You know, looking back at those early career choices, anything you would have changed, any advice you would have given yourself, your younger self about uh, about what to do? I think the first piece of advice was to buy a unit at every single project I was a part of. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not do that. Yeah. If I had, I probably would be on a beach and not sitting here with you today. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is looking back on it, I think I took a lot of my perceived failures a little bit too seriously and didn't realize that that's how you learn and grow. Yeah. So I'd probably tell myself just to, to just take your lumps, learn from it and move on a little bit quicker than I did. And a couple of pieces of pieces of advice that I've gotten along the way that really have resonated and stuck with me to this day. And now I'm spewing them to others is, you know, do the job you want before you get the title. So I think millennials today really, they want to be like a director of VP within a year, two years, three years. Um, And really it's about doing the job. Yeah. Like, show yourself that you can do it and that you're capable and it will come. So I think that was, you know, really evident through my career progression at Great Golf. And then the other piece was I struggled a little bit with when I moved sort of from manager into a director level role, I struggled with delegation and trusting my team. And I got the piece of advice is you're the coach now, not the quarterback. You're not on the field running the plays. So that also has really stuck with me. And now I'm passing it on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyone that's gone into management finds the same thing. It's like, I can do it slightly better than this person, so maybe I should start doing it, right? But instead of teaching them how to do it to your level so that uh, you don't have to do it anymore, right? But then you think you don't have time for it, but you actually do. (laughs) Yeah. If you've got time to do the work, you've got time to teach the work. Exactly, exactly. So so you're at Mattamy Homes, the yes. largest residential home builder in, in Canada. So give us the give us the ten thousand square in North America, actually, in not North that, America. A little bit wow. of a humble brag. Oh wow! Okay, so give us the give us the spiel. So I joined Mattamy about a year and a half ago now. Uh, Mattamy typically has been very single family focused. That's what they're known for. It's the bread and butter. Um, they've you know we've dabbled in the high rise space a little bit. Back in 2015, we acquired Monarch. Um, with the hopes of getting more 
sort of active in that space. But I don't think the commitment was there at that time, nor was it as evident that the condo market is a big, big piece of our housing solution. Yeah. Um, so it kind of fizzled out a little bit. I think there was another kick at the can where they kind of said, let's do this high rise thing. But really, the commitment wasn't necessarily there other than the financial commitment of acquiring Monarch. Um, but last June, uh, when I first joined, we had actually separated and, and reorganized um, the company. It was this tiny little high-rise team. There was probably six or seven people working in it outside of construction. Um, and they did Vita, Downsview, and that was pretty much it. And everything else was controlled by the low-rise teams, okay. either in the east or in the west. So what we did is we separated it. It's now Low Rise or GTL, as we call it, Greater Toronto Low Rise okay. or GTU, which is Greater Toronto Urban. So really that the separation is multifamily versus single family, or more technically, if it's on top of an underground garage, it falls under urban. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So for a lot of your wood frame stuff that you're doing in the suburbs, is that like uh, surface parking then? There is a combination of surface. It's it sort of transitioned over. There was a lot of projects already in the works that the low-rise team had developed and planned and even launched for sale. And yeah. now they're sort of being transitioned over okay. to us. So okay. it's a combination of surface and underground. Okay. And so and so give us this give us who Madme is in total, right? Or your guys are in the United States, you're in are you in you're I know you're in Ottawa, but are you in any other Canadian markets? Yes, we're in Alberta, both in Calgary and Edmonton and a couple of the smaller sort of satellite communities there. Um, and we're in Ottawa as well, and then obviously quite a big presence in the GTA. Yeah. Yeah, I, I still remember back in the days when I would track the lower ice market and Madame would make literally 100, 125 sales like every month in Milton. And yeah. it just blew my mind that you could sell 100, 125 homes every single month in one community, right? Just it uh, it blows my mind that uh, that there was that much demand. It continues. And really, and really, I mean, the demand's still there. We just don't have the, the houses for it. I showed, uh, I did, uh, you know, a little humble brag of my own. I did a uh, lecture, a guest lecture at Shulek on, on Tuesday of this week. And, and one of the charts was showing the level of, low density absorptions in like 2002 and 2001. It was like 26,000 in the GTA, right? And yep. it's gone down and down and down. I think it was the end of the year, somewhere around 6,000 this year, which is, you know, strong based off of, you know, the 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 pandemic kind of got people moving farther out to try to escape the city and escape COVID. So, so back in the uh, 2002, you know, the average price was just under 300,000, right, for a single detached house. And now, uh, and this is absorption, so meaning when the building, uh, when the unit completed, that was the price was, and so in, in 2002, it was 1.32 million. But if you look at the average asking price of a single detached house on the market today, brand new, it's like 2.7, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So it's just, so, you know, it just blows my mind, right? Like yeah. just how expensive it is for, for a single family home. So I guess we should open up the green belt, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'll stay silent on that one. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I was I was trolling some green belters this weekend just for fun on Twitter. So yeah, put some comments out and then just don't even read them or respond to any of their their complaints. But you know, I'm in the high rise business as well, right? Uh, any uh, anything that restricts low rise development is actually good for me in the in the long run. So I always have to remind people that. But uh, that you know, I want to see more. Uh, vertical construction and I want to see more density and uh, it'd be nice if the suburbs can 
grow in a way that can create you know, a, a, a city dynamic, right? And you wonder if that can ever happen, right? Well, we're working on it right now, so hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I, I, I one time took the subway all the way up to the Vaughn Corporate Center, right? And you just get out and it's like, yeah, it's going to take a while before this feels like anything like a city, right? Uh, and I don't know how, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you create a... Uh, uh, you know, the feel of a city organically. Right. So I don't know if you, do you have any more, you know, um, um, lots or property in Downsview? Downsview? No, no, no. Okay. We're done there, but we've got lots of other communities where it's sort of more master planned with multiple towers, a mix of lower high mid and high rise. So, okay. you know, we're really hoping that at least on a couple of those sites where we've got accessibility to transit that we can really sort of start to create that, that yeah. city feel in the suburbs. That city feel, yeah. And it's not it's not easy, right? You wonder, I wonder what some of these suburban communities will be like, right? In, in yeah. the future, right? There was, you know, I think uh, it Pemberton or someone's proposing like 70 towers, <laughs> like the 407 in Young Street, right? Something ridiculous like that, right? Yeah. Maybe, it was, maybe it was 40 towers, but up to 70 stories. Maybe I got the numbers wrong, right? And this, everyone's just blowing everyone's mind, right? So anyway, so, you know, what was, what was the ultimate, you know, what was the, uh, what made you go to, to Mattamy? Was it, were you itching for a change or just a different role, you know, bigger organization? What was the, what was ultimately tip, tip the, uh, did you have a executive, uh, search group helping you out? No, no. <laughs> I actually got called directly by Mattamy. So there was a search group on the, the search, but they, they reached out to me directly. Uh, I think what really, did it for me is is when they explained what they were doing in terms of the reorganization and creating this new division. And I think, you know, and I, I sort of said at the time, and, and we've kind of talked about this, but I sort of said, oh, Mattamy's trying the high rise thing again. Yeah. Um, but the level of commitment that they demonstrated to me throughout the process and when I looked at what our acquisition plans were and sort of where we saw ourselves going in five and 10 years, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. And the other thing too is I think it was a good combination of the best of both worlds. So it's, you've got the resources of a Fortune 500, but creating the new division and starting over with processes and building the team was really that sort of startup vibe that I really liked yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah, it's it's really been sh shocking, right? Like it started, I think, with even Jeannie and Carol way back in the day. We're going to start it, and then uh, you know, obviously I was I was. I want to say involved, but I did some work for like one of the hedge funds that was involved with outsourcing the Monarch deal. So I thought for sure that was going to be, you know, now that Monarch, that, that Mattamy had all these Monarch executives and all these smart people coming on board, that that would happen. And then I heard that, that actually the well site, the Globe and Mail site was tied up by Mattamy. I'm like, well, they're making a splash. And then that didn't happen. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that this, the, the fourth time's the charm. Yeah. All right. So, but it, but one thing I do like about Mattamy and, and that I've made complaints about other low rise developers is you've actually built a good mix in a lot of these communities where you're building stacked townhomes, you're building traditional townhomes, you're doing uh, single family homes, but you're also doing like mid-rise apartments. And I think we need to see more of that in the, the suburbs. Is that, you know, have you, do you have conversations about that stuff? Have you <laughs> been involved in, in, in any of those? Uh, uh, you said you're involved in some of those condo projects in the, in the suburbs, but maybe 
respond to all of that. All of that. <laughs> yeah, let me unpack that. Um, so we exactly. do work very closely with the low rise team in terms of site plan um, and figuring out sort of what the medium or high density block should look like, what product is offered in the low rise, how they sort of complement each other. Um, I think it's really important that we build sort of inclusive, attainable communities with product for everyone. I think that's really where it stems from is we do a ton of research at Matami yeah. around the customer and really understanding what those customer needs are and then building the product for them. So I think that just, you know, inevitably makes us build a wide array of product. Yeah. Um, but, you know, also it's a little bit to do with the fact that we are a volume builder. Um, if we don't offer a good variation on our product, we're going to start to cannibalize our sales very quickly. So yeah. part of it is a little bit self-serving and that yeah. we do need to, to differentiate as much as possible. Yeah. I just think it's important, right? That you should be able to live. If you live in a greenfield development, be nice if you can, you know, if you got divorced or if you, your children moved out, that you have another option to stay right in that immediate neighborhood. Uh, I think one of the things that people hate the most about the suburbs is how much of it is just one type, right? It's just single family homes on large lots or three story townhomes and big box, right? That's all that's being built. And, and it has no, you know, uh, the flavor of a, of a city, right? And I, I, mean, I don't blame people. I have three kids. I know how difficult it is in the city to, uh, one, be able to afford a house big enough for all those things, but daycares and, uh, and all the, the, the higher costs of everything that you have to do with them, right? So I can see how people would want to move out and and there still remains this huge disconnect from the amount of house that's getting the type of housing that's getting built which is now 60 70 percent high rise and when any of these polls are done <laughs> 60 percent to 80 percent of the people say they want a low-rise house right and that's their ultimate goal they don't want to live in a condominium so so i guess maybe from your perspective um you know being in sales and marketing and and, and high rise for so long how do we get people in, how do we get families or at least raising small children in condominiums and wanting to be there? Yeah. So I think a, a couple of things, one, it's not about just putting in 10% three bedrooms and thinking that we're serving families. Typically the price on those units is getting pretty close when you add in the maintenance fees to buying a small townhouse um, or even moving further afoot and, and getting a semi or a detached. So I think we have to find the right price bracket to serve that need of the family that maybe can't afford to move into that bigger house in the suburbs. And then I think we also need to start planning our suites um, for families. So right now it's, you know, a lot of floor plans are very cookie cutter and we're not necessarily thinking about how a family would live in them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, where do you put your stroller? I saw a stroller parked outside on the bike rack actually <laughs> when I came in here today. Uh, where do you put your stroller? You know, is there a kid's playroom as part of the amenity package? Uh, where does all your storage go? You know, are you doing a stacked washer dryer that takes long when you have to do 12 loads of laundry a week? Yeah. Um, or maybe do we go to a more efficient system? So it, we're thinking about all of those things because with pricing the way it is, it's inevitable that a lot of families will need to look at condo as, as yeah. a housing option. Yeah, you know, I, I again, I, I probably talk about Twitter way too much on, on here, but it's a good source of understanding what other people thinking, right? Even though their thinking is completely flawed, <laughs> you know, they want, why aren't developers building more three bedroom units? And I always lay out the argument, right? You know, even at a thousand 
even a thousand dollars a square foot and a thousand square foot unit, that's a million dollars. And then if you wanted a parking spot, which a lot of people do, you know, as much as, you know, if you've got two kids and a dog and stuff, it's hard to ramp them around on transit, right? To their soccer practice or a hockey bag or something like that, right? So you want a parking spot. So let's, let's add $75,000, $80,000 for the, on top of that. And then you got a condo fee and then you got to go up and down the elevator and then you got to park in the underground garage. And then, you know, you have to pay 15% down, if not 20% at one of these projects. And then you might have to wait three or four years to actually take occupancy of it. And then who knows, you might have another kid by then or two. Uh, or the project might get canceled, which is the absolute worst thing that can happen. You waited 18 months or 20 months and we're just fingers crossed. When's this thing going to start construction? And then, oh yeah, by the way, we missed the mark, right? So it just, it's so difficult because that million dollars or a million two or a million one, there's still places on the subway, low density housing with two parking spaces you could get for $1.1 million. It might not be, it's certainly not going to be as nice as a brand new condominium, but the but the daycare costs are probably going to be cheaper. I bet there's more kids in the neighborhood, right? So it's just so stacked against it. And 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 the planners, I see them always like, yeah, 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 we, we want it. We just we just make the three, just make you have the three bedrooms. We're going to get this beautiful community of, of, of family. So I just think we're, we're still so far away from it. But Yeah, and actually I was talking to our division president the other day about this very thing. And, you know, if they really want to push families living in condos and the affordability of it, why don't we actually go the other way in terms of DC charges? Like why, why are we penalizing the three bedroom unit with now you've got a bigger square footage, a higher maintenance fee, and you're going to pay more in development charges. So if there's yeah. some sort of development charge credit, I don't know if anyone from the city is listening, but that's my <laughs> yeah. plug. Um, I, Cause again, it's, it's all about the end price and, and what else that they could buy for that amount. Yeah. So I think it's more about focusing on this, you know, larger two bedroom product. Uh, a girl that used to work for me actually lives in a one bedroom in den, 600 square foot unit with a baby, a teenager and a husband. Oh my God. And when you go to her place, she has thought of everything in terms of how to store (laughs) things. So she's kind of like my test case in terms of how do we build better, more functional, livable units. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've talked to developers who have, have considered moving walls, right? That like, okay, so you're in the living room and you're hanging out, but then you go to bed and you know, everything folds up and that becomes like a bedroom. So you're adding a full bedroom. You're only, because you can only, you know, have so many people in one room at a time. So if you're sleeping, let's convert it into larger sleeping areas. And then, so I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I think you have to just keep thinking outside the box yeah. to, to, to make these things work. And I, you know, I feel bad for any young person, you know, uh, just giving that presentation, looking at all those fresh faces and I'm thinking, oh, these people are never going to be able to afford something. Someone put up their hand. Are we going to, you think Toronto's going to go more towards renting? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Right. Like, you know, when I think of a brand new condo downtown, 1600 bucks a foot for 500 square feet, like who's going to buy that? Like who, who wants to, who is he saying, I want to live in 500 square feet, but has that type of money to, to buy that. Yeah, and right? Especially has you know? the down payment. Like you mentioned earlier, who has that money saved up to put the down payment down, regardless of if you can qualify for the mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, you've been doing sales for a very long time and, and you've seen the evolution of our investor model. How are you feeling about the uh, the relationship between you know investors? Obviously, they want capital appreciation, they want cash flow, they you know obviously they want to make money, and we're in a high interest rate environment. So, what's the what are the, all the big heads at Madame thinking about what's happening right now? 
you know, I think I think the investor market is key. I mean, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have a rental market yeah. or a housing market, and then <laughs> yeah. we'd have a real supply issue. Um, I think right now with the market conditions the way they are, the more speculative investor is kind of taking a step back. But yeah. those who are looking for a long-term hold um, and to rent out their units, they're still in the market. It's taking a little longer to convert them, but yeah. they're still around because they, they believe in the future of the rental market in Toronto and especially yeah. with the, the recent increases in rent rates. Um, they're still here. Yeah. And it's good that they are. <laughs> um, let's move on to like a recent launch. So market was as hot as it's ever been in Q1 of 2022. You know, I'm trying to do market studies and it's almost impossible to do a study when this guy launches at 1400, this guy launches at 1450, this guy launches at 1500, this guy launches at 1575. It was literally like, you know, pricing was going up $50 per square foot every two weeks, right? Like it was really unbelievable. Um, but then interest rates start to go up. You know, investors tend to be a little bit slower to to react to interest rate changes and and changes in the overall market. Once they see it start to hit the resale market, I think it starts to hit them a little bit more. Uh, the market has slowed down, but you guys already had a launch planned uh, in West Bend near near High Park. You came out at a number that everyone thought, oh my God, like what a fantastic deal, right? How did you ultimately decide that you wanted to go at a less aggressive number? So I think, you know, really looking at the market, it, it did kind of just hit a wall kind of mid-April um, and just kind of stopped. Yeah. Uh, so we, we were looking at the projects that were coming to market and what we noticed was a lot of developers were still coming out with pricing that they would have come out at in March. Yeah. Um, so they'd come out, they'd sell 40% of the units, they'd kind of get stuck, then they'd start their incentive campaigns and start offering free parking or, you know, different deposit structure. And they were working really hard and going back and taking eight kicks at the can to try to generate the sales yeah. to get to their threshold. Um, so we kind of said, like, why, why would we do it that way? Why wouldn't we just put our best foot forward out of the gate? Um, make sure that we've got the velocity we need to get to construction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, after that, it's still three years until we occupy. So there's time to sort of play and move around there. But we really didn't want to get to 40% and languish. Yeah. We wanted to, you know, really hit the, the road running. So that yeah. was, well, you know, good. Madme is a volume builder. So yeah. we've got sort of a machine that we need to feed. Yeah. Um, so that definitely factored in as Plus, well. Plus you do your own construction, I imagine. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so we do. You, you, a little bit easier for you to control costs than it would be uh, for, for other developers out there. And yeah, I mean, I've been shocked that we haven't seen many cancellations yet. And I wonder when that, you know, the proverbial shit hits the fan, right? And uh, people start to get to that 18 months past their sales period and they say, Oh, okay. And they're still Maybe sitting I'm, at 40, 50, 50% yeah. Well, some of them, even yeah. they have the sales, right? Like yeah. we saw that in, in, I mean, you were in the market at this time in, in, in 2008 and uh, into, into 2009 where people had 70, 75% sold. They couldn't get financing, right? People was like, no, get me, get you, eight, you know, once you're 85% sold, once so there's, you know, you're you're into the you're into the, your profit, right? That's what will give you financing, right? So, um, you know, pretty interesting. And I, 
you know, I, I haven't talked to enough lenders to, to get a sense of how much belt tightening there is out there, but uh, um, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. I, I it would be nice even, if Steve had been uh, here to <laughs> uh, tell us about that. <laughs> um, I think the one thing above the pricing at West Bend, we also offered a really attractive deposit program, okay. which we did basically it's a 10 plus five. So, you know, the market for the last 10 years has really been 15% down and then five on occupancy. Yeah. We came out and, and made a deal with our lender where we could do a 10% um, before occupancy and five on occupancy. So okay. that really attracted the investors because they had longer to sort of put down and not as much deposit up front. So yeah. that, that was a real key selling feature as well. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and so what, what, you know, I've been doing these, these, these studies for the last couple of years and I've noticed that units are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, uh, and obviously there, some of these areas have loosely defined growing up guidelines where, you know, 25, 30% of the units have to be two bedroom, 10% have to be, to be three bedroom. Uh, and then there's, you know, within the building code, minimum sizes for one bedrooms and, and, and two bedrooms and three bedrooms. But there's no restrictions on studios. So you're seeing projects before that might have had five, 10% studios, but then there's literally projects with 35, 40% studios. I noticed that you didn't do that at, uh, that at, at West Bend, but you know, how are you feeling about the the investors concentrating on those small units and, and we're almost building adult dorms. Like, yeah, you know, I'm just curious if you're having these conversations in, in, in your offices, or are you just like, we will put out to market what sells. And if that changes and to become small units, that will we sell, or will you take a different mindset and say, well, we're mad at me. We have a little bit more financial ability to hold on to some units and then sell them at premium prices at completion. Just maybe if you have any uh, insights there. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing the most demand personally at our projects around the one and the one plus den. Um, studios from an end price perspective, obviously are very attractive. So if you've got to get out and get to your sales velocity pretty quickly to start construction, I think that's why people are, are doing it yeah. is to really just drive the demand for the, the lower priced units. I think it's got to be a, a balance of things. Like I, I definitely wouldn't go as far as going to 35% studio, <laughs> I think, but offering 5%, maybe 10% studios so that you're able to serve a need in the market of, you know, a young couple or a, a single professional, uh, whether they're renting or buying. So I think that there definitely is a need there, but I think you have to balance it to make a, you know, complete um, community. Yeah. And, and, and does Maddie, Maddie have any type of strategy? I mean, we've, we've talked at length on this podcast about the center court model, sell out in two months mm -hmm. and, and, and they're fine leaving a little bit of money on the table, knowing that, you know, they're partnering with the investor and they want the investor to make money. So the investor comes back and, and, uh, and goes with them. But then there's the, what we call the Brad Lamb model, right? Sell to 70%, really crank up the pricing, sell wait. a couple of units during yeah. the construction period, you know, show off your high style Brad Lamb, Lamb development, you know, concrete, mm -hmm. uh, exposed concrete at, 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 at completion. And if you don't sell, uh, you know, you don't sell them all while well, you start renting them and, and, and slowly sell them off as those tenants leave. So there's, you know, totally different. So where does kind of Mattamy fall within that, the, the spectrum, the sales spectrum? Yeah. And I, th I think we fit somewhere in the middle based on our, our volume. We do tend to want to sell and move pretty quickly. Um, you know, the Brad Lamb model and, and Greg, Greg Golf sort of followed a similar model of sort of getting to the 70% and then 
and then juicing the prices and just kind of sell as you sell. Yeah. Um, that works in a good market. Yeah. Anything completing <laughs> in the last nine months and maybe in the next six months from now, that model probably didn't work out too well. Yeah. You also have to factor in advertising costs, your resources in terms of staff. When you stop and start your sales process, it really does it drains the team and yeah. it drains your your marketing budget a lot more to do the units after the fact. So we we would like to kind of get to at least 85, 90%. Okay. Um, and then we kind of wait. We've done projects where we've actually held off units specifically for quick move-ins, um, you know, once the building is completed. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, not to slag Brad, but it didn't work out in Ottawa for him because the market just flatlined for a long time. And so uh, he would have been better, better served to sell just out both of yeah. those, both of the projects he did in Ottawa right away. So, so many has some large scale projects uh, um, coming. One of the ones was um, was uh, a one that uh, that I was at least consulted on. We weren't we won't say who who I did the consulting for, but the Cloverdale Mall development. Several large developers were going for this. Ultimately, Manami got uh, got chosen to, to partner with Quadrille. Maybe tell us a bit about that project, and w w ultimately, what do you think they chose Manami to be the partner there? Yeah, um, that was a really uh, it was a bit of a competitive bidding process. I actually worked on the RFP when I was on vacation in Thailand over the Christmas break last year. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy it turned out because yeah. I would have been very upset about missing vacation time <laughs> and losing. Um, I think really, first and foremost, I think Quadrille's values and Madame's values are very well aligned. Uh, Madame's values around community, commitment, teamwork, and we've added a fourth, which is sustainability. Um, and Quadrille's are around integrity, responsibility, and innovation. So I think just inherently, we fit together pretty well. And when we we're going through the process, you know, there was a couple of interview stages and just talking to them, you could really just feel that there was that cohesiveness with the team. From a more technical perspective, I think a couple of the reasons that we were probably selected, I think brand, obviously brand recognition. madame has got a really good uh, brand name. Um, and I think they recognize the value in that. I think our sales and marketing approach was probably another reason that they chose us and we spent a lot of time talking to them about it. We don't do it the typical way. So when we launch a site, we're not going to launch it, sell 100% of the units through our brokers and be done with it. We no. actually split it out. Um, we've successfully launched projects over the last two years where we've done as low as 40% broker participation and only as high as 80%. Mm -hmm. So right there, there's a cost savings, but I think from a brand perspective, being able to service the people that can't get into the market because they don't have an agent or don't know how to get in, Yeah, I think is great. <clears throat> and then on the construction side, we are in-house for construction, as I said earlier, uh, but we're not the typical in-house model. Um, and I'm doing the air quotes for those of you who can't see me. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's not a profit center. So it's, it's not a separate profit center. So what that really does is that there's obviously cost savings from a construction management fee perspective, mm -hmm. but more importantly, the team is really driven to make decisions based on what's best for the project and not sort of trying to pad the CM fee. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so, um, yeah, I guess give us the, the, the scope of the project, I guess. Okay, so we're starting <laughs> off with the first parcel, which is called the triangle piece. Um, it's about five or 600 units. We're still sort of tweaking the mix. And then we'll work through that and then the rest of the site is kind of 
you know, ours to lose, so to speak. Okay. Um, so we're kind of going through the launch of the triangle and eventually, hopefully we'll sign on for the rest of the site, uh, which is nine buildings and about 4,000 units. Wow. There is a mix of some purpose-built rental in there um, and retail as well. Okay. And so if, if you were involved in the, the future phases, would you build out the rental for them? Would you like to hold some of that? Would they want to sell it? Like, it, do you have any idea how they want to approach that? Yeah, I think we'd still build it out. They'd probably maintain ownership yeah. of it. We're, we're not looking to get into the purpose-built game at this point anyway. Interesting. Um, so they would probably own that asset. Yeah. And uh, are you doing any high rise in the United States under the Madame brand? We are not. Not. Yet. Okay. Although yeah. I'm looking for a Florida site. Nice. <laughs> Specifically for getting the weather. Back, getting yeah. back into, I find that I've been talking about Florida a lot lately. Uh, um, I don't know what it is. You know, we, we, uh, there's been a few developers that have operated out of that market, Van Dyke and, 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 and obviously great golf. And, uh, and, uh, it was recently, I was recently talking about a developer that was active in the Toronto market that is now, uh, extremely active in the United States, Coulter, who was actually, I think, put together the initial assembly for one blower. So it's a nice little, uh, <laughs> nice little tie in, but it actually brings me back talking about great golf. I have to talk about the name young and rich, which is absolutely <laughs> my favorite marketing name of all time. <laughs> Please tell me you had a, had a say in that. <laughs> was it sarcastic or was that? <laughs> no, it just, actually was your favorite. It's the best trolling name of all time. It, it just, yeah. it just fits so perfectly. And it just, because there's so many people who hate condos, hate high rise, hate the marketing yeah. process. They're just angry for no reason. Like it's just a building. It's just a building with a name. Like, like yeah. who cares? Like there's so much, there's so much in the world to get angry about. And you're like, the marketing name of that condo, how it's dare they? Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it, it was, it kind of came about for a couple of reasons. So one, you know, we looked at young and egg and that was kind of like the hot neighborhood for all the young professionals. And it really wasn't a thing until it, was yeah right so we were just set us we were on victoria so it wasn't technically young street but we knew that the young street was important to the buyer yeah um and the young and rich play like based off of the demographic we were selling to like we thought it was kind of cute and resonated <laughs> um and then we just happened to get a lot of publicity around it you yeah. know what they say any publicity is good publicity exactly yeah yeah exactly yeah we had uh we had one of the guys from Greywood on and we were talking about how they had a marketing plan that that got just roasted on the blog TOs <laughs> of the world for whatever reason, which it always it just it blows my mind the amount of things people get angry about. Yeah. Right. But then again, I get angry about uh, a lot of things recently. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the latest thing I get angry about is is all the mayors that talk about Bill 23 and the fact that they're going to be taking in less uh, development charges. And they're like, well, if we charge le the developer less development charges, they're still going to charge, quote unquote, the market rate for housing and not discount it. And I, and I say, developers use several strategies to price. And and there is no like rule book. That's why the reason that I have a job and the reason there's a bullpen and, and several competitors that do the same thing that, that I do and a lot of people do on house is we don't know what the market price is. People don't know, there's no textbook. We have a general idea. This guy traded for this, this guy traded for that. But unless you actually did those sales and sat with those buyers, mm -hmm. you don't know all the things that, that could have been netted out, all the incentives that could have been offered, all those things. So. And they're different sites with different views and different this and different that. So you never know exactly what it is. And sometimes you come up and you say, you know what, 
to make any money on this project, I've got to launch at 20% above my latest competitor, mm -hmm. right? And some people say, that makes sense. Let's do it. Like we think we can, that the market has moved on to this new value. Uh, and sometimes it hasn't. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why there's canceled projects, because sometimes it has not moved to that new number. And other times it has. And they sell the building out in a matter of months. And people say, well, now, now that's the new market number. And then someone else launches 20% yeah. higher. So... And the other thing is there's so many sites, and I'm sure you do underwriting on, on hundreds, if not thousands of sites that don't work. Yep. <laughs> the revenue doesn't justify the cost. Um, and you say, okay, we're not going to buy that property. But if the costs were lower, we, we, whether it be development charges or parkland dedication or, or community benefits charges or, or, or whatever it is, um, taxes, building permits, then maybe it would work. And right. then maybe we'd get more sites built and developed and more housing supply, right? Yeah. So I, I'm getting a little tired of these mayors that are, the market is the market. And I'm like, it just makes me so angry because that's yeah. my job, my <laughs> area of expertise. And then, so when I hear them talking about it, I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, to totally. Like, I mean, most developers typically, if they're smart, will sort of look at what returns that they want to actually get out of it and underwrite it off of that. If the market rate happens to be higher when you go to sale, like that's gravy, that's great. But to your point, a lot of times when you actually go to, to underwrite current market rate, current costs, you're not making money. Yeah. So Yeah, and I mean, the thing that we should always point out is that, I mean, maybe it's not as big as issue for Mattamy with your own construction company, but you're launching before you start construction. <laughs> you know, the majority of the sales are happening in a different market than the construction market. And, and we've had a, a time in the market where inflation has been huge. You know, we've experienced cost push inflation. The costs are pushing up the revenues, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I mean, some of it has been demand because of low interest rates and, and immigration driving investors, but a lot of it has been cost pushing, pushing pricing up. I've, I've done market studies and I said, been really, really confident in my number and saying, I really feel strong that this is the number. And I've been aggressive, okay? This guy's here. I think the market has gone to here. This is your price. And I come back and say, Ben, I can't make any money on that at that number. Absolutely not. Like, I got to push that 50 bucks a foot. And I say, ooh, I don't know if I would do that, right? Yeah. And some have launched and some have been successful and, and others have said, yeah, I think you're right, <laughs> right? I got to wait, yeah. right? I got to wait and, and hold on to this property and it's I'm collecting my parking revenue and, <laughs> and we'll do that for a little bit, right? Yeah. So anyways, that was a lot of me just complaining. But is, is there anything you want to get off your, you know, anything that's, that's driving you nuts? <laughs> uh, I mean, yes, but not industry related <laughs> not, not other industry than related. what we've okay. talked about. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think I'm pretty bullish on the market still, and, and Mattamy is too, you know, we've got, as I mentioned, really aggressive growth plans for Urban. Um, our acquisition uh, strategy is still moving along. We're, yeah. We might take our foot off the gas a little bit, but we're still very bullish. We're moving forward. We're going to continue to launch sites. Yeah. We're actually doing three groundbreakings next week, Wow! which is a great news story. So huh. Martha James in Burlington, nice. West Bend, um, we're already sort of comfortable with our sales threshold there. And then Milan Creek. Okay. Uh, which we just launched in the fall as well. So wow. we're really excited. Huh. And so what else do you have on the pipeline? I know you got some stuff in Scarborough, uh, near Young and Bloor. Like what, what, tell us maybe if you, whatever you can tell us about the, 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 the pipeline moving forward. Yeah, so we did pick up a site in the Golden Mile in Scarborough, um, which we're partnering with Quadril on as well. We brought them into that deal. Um, 
it's going to be about five towers, approximately 2,000 units. So we're just going through the planning process there to, to see what we can get there. Um, and then we've got 10 St. Mary, as you mentioned, uh, which will probably come to market early next year. Okay. Um, we're just doing some construction engineering. It's a bit of a, a tricky, tricky building. So yeah. we're just looking to make sure we've got cost certainty before we hit go on the market. Yeah. Um, and then we've got Cloverdale, which we mentioned, and then we've got lots of sites um, out in the 905 as well. Okay. And are you involved in the, uh, the, the underwriting on acquisitions or are you come in after the fact? No, I'm kind of involved from beginning to from end. Okay. Yeah, That's right good. up till closing. So, you know, we've been very aggressive and I've spent a lot of time throwing numbers and sometimes calling you to help me because <laughs> I don't have time to do it myself. Um, and just to do a gut check to make sure that I'm sort of in line. But yeah, no, we, we are through every step of the process. Nice, nice. Okay. Well, we're coming to the end of the, the allocated time here, but we have a little section at the end called rapid fire. So I did not uh, give you any heads up on these. Some, most of them will be real estate related, but the, so the goal is just to, you know, one, two, three, maybe 10 uh, word responses, but we're just, I'm just gonna hit you with the questions back to back and we'll go. Okay. okay. Uh, you, you did some facial expressions earlier, but so I think I know the answer to this first one. True or false, opening up the green belt is a good idea. It depends. Depends. That's that's a good answer. Uh, Are there too many unsophisticated pre-construction condo buyers? Yes. (laughs) Do you think that we'll see more than 10 GTA new condo projects canceled in 2023? Keeping in mind there's 300 active projects in the marketplace from from pre-construction to to occupied. I hate to say it, but yes. Yes, okay. Um, when are you more productive when you're in the office or when you're at home? My division president is going to hate me for saying this, but at home. <laughs> well, I'm hope that your division president <laughs> listens to the Toronto <laughs> under construction podcast. Um, okay. He's on one about getting everyone back in the office. <laughs> nice. Um, are you seeing a lot of assignment activity in Manami projects? And if so, what kind of percentage are you seeing? Um, the last projects we closed last year, I would say we're probably seeing 30 to 40%. Uh, but those are projects that sold quite some time ago that wow. were delayed by COVID. Huh. Um, so back in 2015, 2016, sales on the Etobicoke waterfront. Wow. You can you can imagine there was good appreciation. There. <laughs> yeah. And you know, people's lives have changed a lot yeah. since 2015, yeah. 2016. Um, now that you're in the design studio, maybe you know this. What is the most requested upgrade with Madame Condo buyers? Switching the tub to a shower, which surprises me because I am a tub person. Okay, so they just want extra space in the bathroom. They just don't see the need they for just a tub. They don't see the need yeah. for it. Okay. Yeah, and I think the look. Yeah, just looks like a little more better. slick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I got it. I got it. If you're reading a book or magazine, do you sit in the kitchen, living room, or bedroom? Usually, it's on a beach. <laughs> When I had time to read. <laughs> Good answer. I like I like this total <laughs> switch up there. Okay. Should the person sitting in the middle seat on an airplane get both armrests? Yes. I think that's I think that's fair. Um, do you get a lot of buyers dropping deals during the ten day cooling off period? Our recent launches, we were sitting at about ten percent. Ten percent. So we saw okay. more drop off during the worksheet and actually getting them on paper. We saw the drop off happening there. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Last one. Have any of the companies you've you've worked for paid attention 
to the Canada is overvalued studies that come out. Does that ever got brought up at the at the the, the the meetings that you have? Not really. Yeah. No. no. I'm in the garbage, so I just I just wanted to make sure that other people know that they're garbage. So. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone wants to to connect, you know, are you are you a Twitter, LinkedIn, are you TikTok? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on TikTok, but only as an observer. But you can catch me on Instagram <laughs> or LinkedIn. Okay. Okay. And it's just madamyhomes.com. Yeah, yeah. homes.com. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate uh, you coming out to the East End and, and talking a little real estate with us tonight. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap.